It's Monday, January 14th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Jeb Sharp, filling in for Marco Werman. Today, creative ways to protest austerity in Spain. One Spanish theater decided to sell carrots instead of tickets. Also, French actor Gérard Depardieu may be a Russian citizen now, but some back home say he's just playing the fool. I think Depardieu is in fact playing the role of what we call in French the um, useful idiots that were used by uh, Lenin to promote Bolshevism and communism. Plus, why Russian soldiers are so reluctant to give up their foot cloths. They are part of Russian military traditions. They are actually much better than the socks. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World. The conflict in Mali took an unexpected turn today. Despite a fourth day of French airstrikes against Islamist militants in the West African nation, the militants gained more territory. The Islamists have controlled Mali's north for months. Now they're moving into government-held central Mali, despite the French intervention that was supposed to stop their advance. Civilians in the region are fleeing the conflict. The group Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, is reporting that some areas are becoming ghost towns. And the number of refugees crossing the border into neighboring countries is steadily growing. Usman Diadye Touré is a filmmaker in Mali's capital, Bamako. He's a member of Defenders of the Republic, an activist movement led by artists and professionals. Usman, what's been the reaction to the French warplanes bombing Islamist bases? With the arrival of the French soldiers, there was a feeling of relief in Bamako. Now we're seeing French flags and Malian flags all over Bamako. You're seeing French flags everywhere. I think there was a reborn of French love in Mali because of uh, uh, the French coming to rescue us from uh, such a situation. Usman, were you surprised that the French intervened? Surprised on the way I was, on the way I was, because uh, uh, I wasn't expecting it. It's most welcome anyway. It came right on time. We were wishing and hoping that uh, the West African forces would come uh, much earlier, because we've seen that this conflict has been going on for a couple of months, and we're really expecting a very quick reaction from West African forces. We are part of ECOWAS, so we really uh, were wishing and hoping that ECOWAS would respond quickly to our demands. Do you see this French intervention as a turning point? Most definitely. Most definitely. We've seen the results on the ground. With the French forces, we were able to stop at least the terrorists. We still need more. We still need more. We have seen on the ground, on the fighting ground, that we still need more to, to secure the country and to free the, the occupied regions. Are you hoping or expecting other countries would get involved, including the U.S.? We wish. We wish. We wish. We, we, we've heard on the news that the U.S. is already involved into uh, helping logistically in terms of... Uh, information, and uh, we should hope that uh, they would help more. There are reports that Malians are lining up to give blood to help injured civilians. Those who can give blood 
are giving blood, those who can help financially or in terms of communication. Some uh, doctors, volunteer doctors, are going on a war front uh, helping. Usman Diadiatoure is a filmmaker and activist. He's currently in Bamako. Thanks for your time. Thank you. The French decision to launch airstrikes against the Islamists in Mali stands in contrast to the American decision not to intervene. But the U.S. is sharing intelligence with the French, and State Department spokeswoman Victoria Nuland says the Obama administration is reviewing other ways to cooperate with the French in Mali. We share the French goal of denying terrorists a safe haven. Uh, We are in consultation with the French now on a number of uh, requests that they have made for uh, support. Jennifer Cook is director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Jennifer, it doesn't sound like the French airstrikes are stopping the rebel advance in Mali. What's your read on the situation? Yeah, I think the idea was to repel them first further northward. Um, They were making advances towards the south. It's turning out to be a little more complicated than they had thought with attacks uh, reportedly coming across the border from Mauritania. The French have now launched attacks against about five towns in northern Mali, and they're meeting a pretty fierce resistance. So this is pulling them in in a more complicated struggle than perhaps they had initially anticipated. Did you see this French intervention coming? Well, no, and I don't think many people thought about the possibility of a surge southward by the Islamist groups. Uh, France saw this as a red line, new territory taken. I think their idea was to give the African Union forces time to get organized and and to the task of dislodging the Islamists from the north. Is there a U.S. role here? What's, What's happening in the background in terms of Washington? Well, the U.S. has been somewhat skeptical of too hastily organized an African Union deployment. It wants fairly clear objectives, you know, a more realistic time frame, and is also pushed for kind of a political resolution of the fragility within the government in Bamako. They've said they support the French in what they're doing. Uh, They've offered or they're considering offering surveillance drone support for this. And I think for many people, whether it's in Africa, the EU, or the United States, that potential crossing of the Islamists into southern Mali has been the red line. Are you concerned about the thrust of U.S. policy in the region? I mean, U.S. efforts to help the government of Mali fend off this rebellion basically failed. Yeah, we did a lot of training in that. I think we were a little bit blind to the weaknesses of the Malian government in terms of what kind of support it was giving, how credible it was in the eyes of the Malian people. You know, we had hailed this as a model democracy in West Africa. It turns out, you know, looking a little deeper beneath the surface, there was a lot of problems there that I think we failed to recognize. If the French had not intervened, would the U.S. have intervened? Oh, that's a very tricky one. The the U.S. has wanted to stay out of this as much as possible. And I think it's felt that U.S. direct action might in some ways make things worse, kind of galvanize, you know, the Islamists and to become more of a magnet for global jihadists and so forth. It doesn't want to get entangled in this. It's been pushing very hard to make the African Union the lead force on this. I think it's probably very relieved the French intervened. France is not the United States, but could there not be a similar backlash against the French intervention? Yes, there could. France has has had this kind of long and controversial history in Africa of kind of police interventions of of this kind. 
I think France has beefed up security in Paris in the wake of this. It has hostages being held in Mali who this intervention puts them at risk. Uh, I think it feels that the costs of Islamist expansion are high enough that it warrants taking this action, however controversial, however complicated, and, and whatever kind of, of backlash it might ultimately create. Jennifer, just finally, help Americans understand the urgency here. What What is at stake in Mali right now, and, and how worried are you? You know, it's a pretty bleak picture for Mali. The idea of a regional hub comprising, you know, terrorists, drug traffickers, hostage takers in the middle of the Sahel that can destabilize neighboring countries, Niger, Mauritania, and even further south in West Africa, it's extremely troubling. It's one that's going to be very difficult to resolve over the long term. Jennifer Cook, thank you very much. Thank you. Jennifer Cook is director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. In Spain, hardly a day goes by without a protest against the government's budget cuts and tax hikes. In fact, Spaniards have been protesting a lot over the past few years. Mostly, they've taken to the streets, as thousands of healthcare workers did yesterday in Madrid. But people throughout Spain are also coming up with more creative ways to protest. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from the Catalan town of Bescano. A piano tuner sits alone on a dark theater stage testing his work. He's also helping the theater's sound guy get levels for this night's show. This is the Bescano Theater, about an hour north of Barcelona. Bescano isn't on a lot of tourist maps, but last October it made the news as far away as New Zealand. (laughs) Because instead of selling tickets for a play one night, it sold carrots. It was a protest against the tripling of sales tax on cultural events, part of the Spanish government's attempt to raise cash as the economy contracts. Tax on produce is much lower, says the theater's director, Kim Marseille. He sold individual carrots for the same price as tickets. He says we had to find something symbolic to sell. We thought of pens, but taxes have gone up on school supplies, too. Of all the produce, the carrot struck us as the most ridiculous, he says. We were hoping to get local media attention, but the whole world came. By all measures, a perfect protest and publicity stunt. But Marseille did it just once, afraid tax authorities would fine him. Now, six months later, he says the crisis has only worsened. Journalists have long forgotten him. His public has dwindled. Promised government subsidies haven't materialized. The Bescano is barely staying open. This year might not be the last, Marseille says, but only because the town pays for some shows. We'll likely go from hosting about 50 events to just hosting the end of the school year celebration and the town Christmas pageant. Marseille says since the tax on theater tickets jumped, sales are down by 40 percent nationally. Some of the country's most important theaters are laying off staff and threatening to close altogether. But hardest hit are the small theater companies like this one called Poca Cosa. Poca Cosa's two principals, Merichel Yanes and Elena Martinez, are hoping this play for kids about a cow that wants to sing opera can keep food on their tables. Between shows, Yanes takes a reporter to her home, a small space above an abandoned tanning factory. She keeps warm by the heat of a pellet stove. 
eats lettuce and onions she grows out back to save money. Yo hasta ahora ganaba unos tenía contado unos 1600 euros al mes. She says up till this year I was taking home about 2100 a month after taxes. Now I'm earning half that. Spain is in the fifth year of a crisis involving huge public debt and a property crash. Janes says she's glad at least that Spaniards have found creative rather than violent ways to voice their discontent with austerity measures. Each protest is like a mushroom, she says. It grows, dies, but another springs up. We're civilized. We're not out trashing the town or burning trash bins. That does happen at some of Spain's bigger anti-austerity marches, but Spaniards have also found more offbeat ways to speak out against austerity, tax hikes, and the ensuing misery. There are locksmiths refusing to lock out people evicted from their homes. Then there are individual drivers, like this woman, who are simply refusing to pay increased toll charges on highways, then posting their acts of civil disobedience on a popular Facebook page. And while some angry mobs storm banks. These musicians snuck into a crowded unemployment office last week, not so much to protest as to brighten some faces. The song made people smile and sing along, even though the numbers in Spain aren't promising. Unemployment is set to rise again this year, surpassing 26%. For workers in the theater world, the hope is that more venues will sell carrots to keep prices down. It may just be catching on. A concert hall in Zaragoza just did it, and a comedy festival is planting carrots now to sell us tickets at their events in the spring. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon, Bescano, Spain. Sing along with the baffled clients at one of Spain's unemployment offices. The Beatles' flash mob video is online at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World. French actor Gérard Depardieu has made lots of news recently. First, he moved to Belgium, upset by the French government's proposed 75% tax for millionaires. Then he agreed to become a citizen of Russia, taking up an offer made by President Vladimir Putin himself. Now, Depardieu has gone on national TV in Russia to praise Putin for his, quote, political wisdom and criticize the opposition. Depardieu's words may actually carry some weight in Russia. His movies are very popular there, and he's famous for his commercial endorsements, too. That's Depardieu in an old TV ad for Baltimore, a Russian brand of ketchup. Baltimore! Ketchup Baltimore tomatoes. Laure Mandeville is Washington correspondent for the French daily Le Figaro. She says Depardieu is allowing himself to be manipulated by the Russian government. President Putin in particular, I think he's enjoying very much showing the West that Russia is this wonderful place where great actors like Depardieu are coming. But I think Depardieu is in fact playing the role of what we call in French les idiots utiles, the um, useful idiots that were used by uh, Lenin in his time in the West to promote Bolshevism and communism. And I think Depardieu in his own way 
plays this part now. So there's clearly a lot of history to this, and you yourself have written about a sort of centuries-old fascination between France and Russia. How far back does this history go, this tension, this love-hate relationship? This sort of fascination for Russia dates back to the 19th century. Even before the revolution, the encyclopedists were fascinated by Russia and they called the enlightened despotism. But then there was this sort of attraction to Russia of many people in France who were not happy with the revolution and looked to Russia as a place where they could thrive. So it was a complicated uh, history. And at the same time, as you know, Catherine the Great was extremely influenced by the French thinkers of, of this period, you know, all the Enlightenment. And she welcomed Diderot in Russia. He, and Diderot was fascinated by Catherine the Great. And I would say he was blind to all the faults of, of this regime. You talk about this sort of people in France seeing this enlightened despotism in Russia. Say a little bit more about the other side of the relationship, Russia and the Soviet Union's fascination with France. What is it that people see in France that they want or that resonates with them? First of all, there was the influence of the French Revolution, which was extremely strong and actually was somehow imported in Russia, but in this sort of Eastern and uh, despotic form, you know, which was the Russian Revolution. And also the Russians have always thought of France, of you know, the country of culture, of uh, sophistication. They loved uh, French literature, all the elite in, in Russia in the 19th century and in the early 20th century spoke French. Whole chapters of Tolstoy's books are written in French, you know, in War and Peace, and uh, what is interesting is there was a sort of reverse trend after the Russian Revolution when the French intellectuals started longing for the socialist ideology and and the Marxist uh, model. And you have all this very prominent series of French writers like Sartre and Gide and Aragon and many others who went to, to the Soviet Union as to the new Mecca. And they were blinded, too, by their ideology for many, many years. So, Laure, as you sit in Washington and you watch this new example of this love-hate, push-pull, wannabe relationship, how do you explain it? I mean, what fundamentally is going on now, and how does it connect to this history? Well, I think that the first basic explanation is that Depardieu is fleeing the socialist new fiscal environment and the fact that he doesn't want to pay 75% of income tax. And the other element is that he chose Russia as a symbol now of autocracy and of a regime extremely tough and hostile to any kind of opposition. And this opposition is coming back again, and they are very frustrated to see that such a symbol of French culture and French cinema says that Russia is a great democracy. Laure Mandeville is Washington correspondent for the French daily Le Figaro. Thank you for the history lesson, Laure. Thank you. Want to see an old ad of Gérard Depardieu hawking ketchup in Russian? We have that and other videos showing the French fascination with Russia at theworld.org. Of course, Russia is a fascinating place with its own set of quirks and traditions. One of the more unusual ones in the Russian military is not wearing socks. You heard correctly, no socks. Instead, for untold generations, young Russian conscripts have had to learn to use partyanki, or foot cloths. Well, today, Russia's defense minister said that must end. 
Svetlana Savranska is the director of Russian programs at the National Security Archive at George Washington University. Svetlana, first, can you describe these footcloths? Yes, Partyanki is a square piece of cotton, which is kind of rough to touch. I had some experience because a lot of my friends were in the army. You wrap it around your foot and you're supposed to do it all in 45 seconds. Describe them a bit more. What? How does that work, that wrapping? You, uh, you spread the cloth on the chair, you put your foot on the cloth, and then you wrap it kind of diagonally around your foot and then up the ankle. And one of the strong points of Partyanki is actually that it helps hold the ankle stable but it also, if you do not put it on in an exactly right way, it could really badly bunch up and produce terrible blisters. That sounds horrible. And some of my friends to whom I just talked, they said uh, during their service, they saw some horror stories where those blisters went untreated when very young draftees would come for the vi- very first days in the army, uh, they could not put Partyanki on properly, and they were made run great distances, and sometimes those cases led to other diseases, and the boys ended up in hospitals. People are passionate about whether or not they want socks or Partyanki, these foot cloths. What does it denote whether you want one or the other? You know, it's very interesting. Just a very quick look at the first responses to this decision reveals that the Partenki issue could be used as a litmus test for your political preferences in Russia. I did not expect to find it, but very predictably, most of the liberal sites on the Russian Internet were very strongly in favor of this decision, saying that the use of Partenki is uncivilized, It shows lack of care for the draftees, for the conscripts, and lack of medical attention. And at the same time, the more conservative sites, more Russian patriot sites, all spoke in favor of Partyanki, saying they're part of Russian military traditions. They're actually much better than the socks. They're much better, especially when used with the particular Russian high boots that are still used in the Russian army, and that uh, Partyanki also denotes continuity from the pre-revolutionary Russian army to today, and that they should be kept. So it's a very interesting split of opinion. Svetlana Savranska, Director of Russian Programs at the National Security Archive at George Washington University. Thank you, Svetlana. You're very welcome. This is PRI. I'm Jeb Sharp, filling in for Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, Johnny Cash's famous prison concert. No, not at Folsom, but in Sweden. And later, an insider's tip on how to survive the smog in China's capital, Beijing. You stay inside, breathe shallow breaths, and uh, hope that a strong wind comes through and blows it somewhere else. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org 
I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The horrific gang rape and death of a young woman in Delhi last month led to widespread public outrage in India. Protesters took to the streets demanding more respect and justice for women in India. Those protests have reverberated in neighboring Pakistan. Women's activists there have been fighting repressive rape laws for years. One of those activists is Hina Jalani, a lawyer who practices before Pakistan's Supreme Court. I think this uh, whole public mobilization has been very inspiring for people in Pakistan. They now understand how important it is that the responsibility and the ownership of social action is taken by the public and not just left to small groups of civil society organizations uh, or human rights and women's rights groups. Has there been a similar case in Pakistan, something sort of so egregious and, and, and so public that people couldn't look away? Yes, there have been. And uh, uh, in Pakistan, there has been similar mobilization. We've also had, because of that kind of mobilization over individual cases, many policy changes and certainly legislative reform did take place in 2004, which dealt with the very notorious rape law in Pakistan that was famous for turning the victim into an accused because of certain technicalities in the law and because of its anti-women slant. Is that law still in effect? No, but prosecution of rape is still a problem. Not more than 2% of rape cases that are reported can be successfully prosecuted, basically because of requirements of evidence and because of laxity in investigation. Hina, tell me how Pakistan is the same or different from India in terms of its response to gender violence. The difference between the situation in India and some of the other South Asian states, of course, is that India has had a consistent history of democracy. Many of our countries have fallen prey time and again to dictatorial and arbitrary rulers who, as a policy, have promoted one particular trend or another as a ploy to control people's lives. And therefore, the kind of public action we have seen in Delhi, where almost everybody was out on the road protesting, is difficult to achieve in Pakistan. Nevertheless, Pakistan does have a history of public protest. Women's rights movement is one of the strongest, and they have perhaps set the tone for public protest as an effective mode of compliance with human rights standards by governments, especially in the area of violence against women. But Hina, I mean, I I take what you say and, and hear the history, but isn't it the case that it can also be very tough to protest in Pakistan? I mean, when people gather to protest something like what's just happened in India, what happens? And now, of course, because of the fact that there is an elected political government in place, we do not expect any kind of violence response from governments. But in the past, uh, let me tell you, during martial law, for instance, it was the norm that brute force of the state was used against women's rights activists, against journalists, against lawyers, against parliamentarians even when we had come out to protest on any issue and on any violation of human rights. Finally, just how, how do you see this case in India affecting cases in Pakistan, if at all? 
I think it is already affecting the situation of uh, civil society uh, response to this whole question of violence against women, not just in Pakistan, but in other uh, South Asian countries also. You have seen that this uh, particular protest did reverberate in other South Asian capitals, uh, in Lahore, in, in big cities like Karachi. This is certainly something that has inspired uh, a kind of reinvigoration of advocacy on violence against women. Hina Jelani, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been nine months since parliamentary elections in Myanmar ushered in opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi and members of her party. That's the National League for Democracy, or NLD. It's still a minority party, but an active one. And as the country continues to figure out what a democratic system looks like, the NLD's longtime activists and dissidents are figuring out how to work within that system. Bruce Wallace recently visited one of the new members of parliament in Yangon. Pew Pew Thin's office occupies two floors of a narrow building along a noisy street. It's buzzing with activity, some related to her new role as an elected lawmaker, some to her old role as a prominent HIV-AIDS activist. Her activism made getting out the vote easy. Supporters thronged campaign events, and she won handily in last April's elections. Her party, the NLD, now has 42 seats. They're a tiny but symbolically significant piece of the 664-seat parliament. (laughs) Pew Pew Thin says she's glad to be there as her country starts to democratize, and she sees potential to get a lot done. But parliament moves slowly, and she sometimes feels like she's wasting time. One of the NLD's first legislative actions actually aimed to speed things up. When they introduced bills, most lawmakers would talk for an hour. Then questions would take another hour or two. Everything took so long. So Aung San Suu Kyi and our party made a motion to limit the time spent on these statements to 10 minutes. And it worked. In fact, Pew Pew Thin says the NLD's working relations with the ruling party, the USDP, are pretty good. She says the USDP gave them a warm welcome. It's remarkable considering the USDP is an offshoot of the former military government that was NLD's main antagonist and oppressor for decades. The current military has a block in parliament. The Constitution reserves a quarter of the seats for them. And these guys? They're not as welcoming, she says. They keep to themselves, sitting off to one side in the chambers. Even when we break for tea or lunch, most of the MPs will talk and socialize, but the military MPs go off to a separate part of the room and they don't talk to anyone. Still, she's upbeat about the progress her party has made in its short time in elected office. She points to efforts to upgrade some of Yangon's major institutions, including Yangon University and General Hospital. Soon, she hopes to move on her central concern, the country's woefully inadequate health system. Although observers note a severe lack of resources, this parliament has surprised many by a willingness to flex its muscles. I live here in Washington, and where the Congress doesn't manage to take on many big issues in one year or even one Congress. Murray Hebert is a Southeast Asia expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in D.C. These guys have taken on some really heavy, heavy issues, uh, They're now looking at a mining law. They've taken on freedom of assembly. There's just an awful lot of issues, very complicated issues that they're taking on and getting done with reasonable speed, which I think is impressive. Before the next general election in 2015, the NLD and others are hoping to push through constitutional amendments that would loosen the military's grip on power. And these things, as Pew Pew Thin is learning, take time. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, Yangon.
Today's geo quiz might be easy for you if you were a teenager 45 years ago. Making the Billboard Top 10 45 years ago were a few unforgettable tunes. The Beatles topped the chart with Hello, Goodbye, followed by Daydream Believers by the Monkees, and Gladys Knight's I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Johnny Cash was also shaking up the music world. 45 years ago, the man in black was recording his first concert behind bars in Folsom State Prison. But did you know that Johnny Cash traveled outside the U.S. to perform for prisoners? We're looking for the Scandinavian country where he sang for inmates in 1972. By the way, he opened the show with A Boy Named Sue. We'll fill you in on that historic concert in a few minutes. If you followed the news over the weekend, you probably caught wind of the -the off-the-charts smog crisis in Beijing on an unofficial air pollution scale of 0 to 500. Kept by the U.S. Embassy there, smog levels hit a jaw-dropping 755. The world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad, is one of the millions in Beijing who've been gasping for breath. Mary Kay, how bad is it? Okay, well, on a clear day, you can see the western hills, which are about 16 miles away. Yesterday, I couldn't see a block and a half. Basically, there's cold air that's being held in place by warm air over the top of it, and then there's no wind blowing through. So we're sort of stuck with whatever emissions there are for a few days. And this happens every few months in Beijing, but this is by far the worst that I can remember in 14 years of living here. What do you do? How do you live when conditions are like this? Well, you stay inside, breathe shallow breaths, and uh, hope that a strong wind comes through and blows it somewhere else. And are people there accepting, or are they angry, or what's the mood? So on Weibo, which is China's version of Twitter, there have been something like 60 million tweets about the pollution. It's not just in Beijing. It's actually in several cities in northern China, because this is a regional issue. Uh, There are factories all around these northern provinces that are highly polluting. Um, This time, at least seven cities had very, very serious pollution. And so this has sparked a lively discussion on Weibo with a lot of people asking why the government isn't doing more to move China more quickly to a cleaner type of development, um, not relying so much on dirty coal and low emission standards to try to further growth. The Chinese government already started to move about seven or eight years ago toward improving emission standards and trying to clean up to some extent, um, you know, the standards for emissions from new factories. Meantime, how is the government responding? Well, it's interesting. I mean, in the in the past, in past years, uh, the government tried to downplay pollution and even sort of pretended it wasn't pollution. They'd call it fog. Now they're admitting that there's serious pollution, and particularly particulate matter of the fine variety, the kind that can get lodged in your lungs. And it's interesting how this came about. The U.S. Embassy here has monitoring instruments within the embassy grounds, and they have been publicizing via Twitter what the readings are every hour. So a lot of Chinese followers of Twitter have been keeping an eye on what the pollution readings are. And after the Chinese government sort of sounded offended and made its representations to the U.S. Embassy and said, well, how would you like it if we put monitoring equipment in U.S. cities and the response was, be our guest, the Chinese government, the Beijing government, has decided that it should be reporting levels as well. And it has been reporting fairly accurately. 
Um, but basically, they're recognizing that this is an issue and they're encouraging people to keep uh, exposure to a minimum, keep kids in, don't let them play outside until this passes. The World's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstead from Beijing. Thanks, Mary Kay. Thank you, Jeb. Just how thick is the smog in Beijing? We've got pictures of the CCTV tower taken over the weekend. Good luck finding the building. The pictures are at theworld.org. We're going to talk about another kind of pollution, light pollution. The brilliant lights of urban life can block out the light from distant stars. So stargazers in the UK have recently come up with a workaround. It's a list of dark sky locations where anyone can go to enjoy a good view of the night sky. Dan Hillier is with Dark Sky Discovery. We reached him at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, Scotland. Scotland actually has some very remote and rural communities up in the Highlands and Islands. And we got a program together, which we called that program Dark Sky Scotland. It's really taken off. And, and the whole idea of dark sky seems to captivate people. Why do you think that is? Why, why do people respond? Well, the phrase dark skies, I think, gives an impression of an immediate connection with the night sky that's not as complicated and maybe tricky or difficult as using telescopes and binoculars. So whilst astronomy is and can be very high tech, the idea of experiencing a dark sky is a much more immediate experience of the night sky. Do you find people are less familiar than they used to be with the night sky? Uh, uh, without doubt. I think most people do live in, in relatively light-polluted areas, and we rarely get a chance to see the whole sky in its entirety. So light pollution coupled with sort of tall buildings and other structures means that we're just not familiar with stuff that's up there sort of every night of the year, really. And we've, we've lost that connection. You have people coming to the observatory tonight. What's up there tonight? What will they see? So the audience will be um, having a look at our telescope. We've got a, a dome structure that can rotate. We might even hear that rumbling in the background in a moment. I think the main object people will recognize, and this is true for people anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, essentially, will be the bright object in the southeastern sky, a bright star-like object called Jupiter. It's actually a planet, the largest in the solar system. It's fantastic just to be able to see it and recognize it with the naked eye. If you get the chance to look at it through a small telescope or even a pair of binoculars, you may be able to make out some three or four small dots lined up either side of the planet. Those are the, the planet's moons, and those are the moons that Galileo saw when he was the first person to look at Jupiter with a telescope and made some fantastic first sketches of those moons. And if you're lucky enough to look at that Jupiter over a series of two or three nights, what you'll see is that they change positions because these moons are orbiting Jupiter and the speed at which, with which they do that mean that from night to night they're in different positions and it's quite fantastic to see another system uh, out there in space. Do you remember the first time you saw Jupiter and the moons? Yes, I do. I was uh, up in uh, the Highlands. It was a residential event. Someone had brought a telescope along for that event. There's something curious that, that when you see something that is another world and another system, such as Jupiter and its moons, it makes you feel connected with the universe, but also it, it gives you a new perception of Earth in your own place on Earth. So it's, it's, it's sort of looking outwards, but looking inwards at the same time. Dan Hillier is project leader of the group called Dark Sky Discovery. It's organizing a list of good places to go for the best view of the night sky. Thank you. Have a lovely evening with your folks. Okay, thanks very All much. Right. 
I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World. In our GeoQuiz today, we asked you to name the other country where Johnny Cash performed for inmates in a prison. We all know that he performed for prisoners many times here in the United States. But where else? The answer is Sweden. For many fans of The Man in Black, the live album Johnny Cash recorded in Sweden is a classic. It was October 1972, and as he'd done many times before in the U.S., Cash was playing for an audience of prisoners. Talk me a venner. Thank you, my friends. I hope you like our music, he said. I hope you like me. Busted flat in Baton Rouge, waiting for the trains. Johnny Cash had long believed in the power of rehabilitation over punishment. He held nothing but disdain for the harsh conditions in American prisons. And so his visit to Osterrocker, a new prison just a short drive from Stockholm, must have been like visiting the Promised Land. It was radical, even by the standards of progressive Sweden. For a start, it held just 100 inmates. Carlo Catharbring was a prison therapist at Österrocker. He took part in a recent BBC documentary about cash and prisons. At that time, it was a very liberal atmosphere, and we had lots of resources. I mean, we had about two staff on every prisoner. Can you imagine? Two staff on every prisoner. Prisoners had civilian clothes. People who came from outside couldn't say which one is a prisoner and which one is staff here. Catharbring says the prison wasn't perfect. They had a big drug problem in those days. Yet it seems the authorities at Österrocker were prepared to play a little loose with security to accommodate Johnny Cash. See, he wanted to record the concert for posterity. Klaus Berling, CBS records man in Sweden, remembers cables being pulled in through ventilation shafts under the window. And into the congregation hall. That was considered a very high risk at the time. Still, Berling had a unique perspective on the concert. I was not able to sit in the audience to watch the performance because we were not supposed to mix. So I stood at the back of the stage, just behind the band when they played. So I was like an extra member of the band, and it was a fantastic feeling there. you've been living hell You've called at me since 1963. I've seen them come and go, and I've seen them die. This song, of course, is San Quentin, the site of another prison and another concert, but here it's for this group of inmates, for the Swedish prisoners of Osterrocker. Osterrocker, what good do you think you'll do? Do you think I'll be different when you're through? By the way, Osterrocker is still a functioning prison. As for Johnny Cash, he returned to play concerts in Sweden a number of times before his death, but never again at the Osterrocker prison. Finally today, a musician who's considered an outlaw by some government officials in Indonesia. His name is Iwan Falls, and he's an outspoken advocate for social justice in his country. Maria Bakalapalo reports from Jakarta. In Indonesia's capital city, Jakarta, it's hard to find someone who hasn't heard of Iwan Falls. 
52-year-old Yanwar, who prefers not to give his last name, lives on the streets, selling discarded plastic bottles to recyclers. He says Falls of Music sings out against political corruption. I like Iwan Falls because the music and the lyrics criticize the people who work in the government, so those people could be better, so they could do a better job compared to now. For many, Falls is the voice of Indonesia's discontent. Even today, he's a constant critic of the government. His sound and subject matter is reminiscent of early Bob Dylan. Falls is 51 today. He has produced 30 albums and has a new one on the way. His music covers everything from government corruption to underpaid teachers, as well as pollution and love. Falls started performing when he was only 13. When I was school age, I started playing music in the streets to make a little extra pocket money. I could see a lot of what was happening while on the streets. I would write songs about these things that I found interesting. I would stop by my friend's stall and read the newspapers he sold. There were so many stories that I could read about and would inspire me to write songs. At a recent show in Bali, Iwan Falls played for three hours straight to a mostly young crowd. Bento is a protest song about a greedy man flaunting his wealth. Although his music is often sung during protests, Fall says he likes to sing about things other than politics. Uh, sebelum saya jawab itu, gitu, saya dari awal saya bikin lagu. From the beginning until today, I've never wanted to be boxed into doing a certain type of music, whether it was political, social, environmental, or love songs. I just want to fill my life and my time with music and songs, but I never like to see people treated badly. That is why my songs are the way they are. Back in central Jakarta, at a railway station coffee stall, Andy Chandra is playing chess. He first heard Iwan Falls' music 20 years ago. He says the music depicts the social inequality many Indonesians face today. So basically I like Iwan uh, Falls because his song is very strong to push the reforms, talking about the social activities. So he's, he's, uh, he's a nice man. We need, uh, we need more Iwan Falls in Indonesia. Fans like Chandra say that Falls gives people like him a voice. Even though Indonesia's economy is on an upswing, the rift between rich and poor is growing. The lyrics that spoke to people more than a decade ago are still having an impact. For the world, I'm Ria Bakalapolo, Jakarta. Kami bertanya 
is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.